My name's Paul. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at The Journey, and we're going to continue in our teaching series. We're in week three now of a series we're calling People of the Gospel. As we look at the New Testament book of Philippians, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul, who Laura describes so well, wrote to a community of Christians in the ancient Roman city of Philippi. And um, before we look at Paul's words, though, I actually want to look at the words of someone totally different from Paul, a guy named Richard Dawkins, who you may have heard of. He's one of the more prominent and outspoken atheists in the world today, very prominent. And years ago, he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. It was really a book about molecular biology and evolution and things like that. In his book, he says this. It'll be up on the screen. He says, I am not advocating a morality based on evolution. I am saying how things have evolved. I am not saying how we humans morally ought to behave. If you wish to extract a moral from it, read it as a warning. Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly toward a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Let us understand what our own selfish genes are up to because we may then at least have a chance to upset their designs. I really appreciate the, the honesty here of this observation and insight that you know, despite what we might like to tell ourselves, at least from a purely biological standpoint, we're born selfish. Human beings are inherently self-centered creatures that it's actually so deep within us and core to who we are, it's in our very DNA to be selfish. Now, as a Christian, I do believe we're more than just our biological makeup, and I, I would have a quite different, larger framework than Richard Dawkins for how we got to where we are and where we can find hope in the midst of it. But this observation right here that we're kind of inherently selfish creatures, I think it's spot on. And the Bible would actually affirm this. And the Bible, in fact, has, has its own term, I think, for what he's describing here, which it calls our sin nature as human beings, our sin nature. And biblically speaking, sin is more than just kind of breaking some commandments or doing some things that doesn't make God happy, that sort of thing. But at a much deeper level, far more fundamental than that, is that in our nature is just a deep-seated, deep-rooted self-centeredness, that we are inherently uh, wanting to put ourselves at the center of our lives, at the center of everything, rather than God. Middle-aged Middle Ages uh, theologians had a Latin term for this called cor curvum in se, which means that we're curved in on ourselves, that we're kind of fundamentally bent inward. It's like a magnetic pull or you know, gravi- gravitational pull inwards to continually turn to ourselves, to put our own interests first, and, and to say to God, not thy will be done, but my will be done. I want it my way, and we think of ourselves first. And that is so core to who we are, it's at a deep level, and we pass it on to every generation, all our descendants after us. So now back to Philippians in our study. Uh, This church um, was a church uh, that was kind of a gospel community. That's what we're calling our our sermon today, gospel community. They were a community of people that were impacted by the gospel of Jesus. And as that happened, this church in Philippi was actually becoming known as a pretty selfless bunch They were commended lots of places for their generosity, for their giving, for uh, being a church that even though they were having a lot of their own problems and struggles, were continually looking out for other people and their problems in the midst of it. And including Paul's, actually, that's 
part of why he wrote this letter in the first place is that the Philippian church heard that Paul was suffering, that Paul was in prison for his faith in Christ, and, and they wanted to do something. They went out of their way to send him encouragement, to send him material support and provision, even though they themselves were suffering quite a lot of opposition of their own. They had their own problems, but they were looking out for Paul and his problems in the midst of it. So Paul writes to commend them for that, to thank them for that. And yet, even though this church has been unselfish and demonstrated that, as we get into the heart of this letter, it seems like this selfish gene is still trying to rear its ugly head in that community. That there is still a temptation for the Philippians in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of of facing opposition, to curve in on themselves, to turn inward, both individually, where there's conflict in the church, people are looking out for themselves first, and as a community, to kind of turn inward again. And Paul is urging them now, don't do that. Don't do this now. Don't give in to the selfish gene and let it have its way, but live a different way. And so we're going to open up now to chapter 1 of Philippians and start in verse 27. That's where we've left off in our study. We'll read from, from there on to chapter 2, verse 11. And where we're going to start today is actually a pretty big turning point in the letter to the Philippians. So up until now, Paul has, has greeted the community. He has shared with them how he's praying for them. And last week, we saw how he shared with them how he's responding to his own circumstances. So Paul being in prison and suffering, he, he shared kind of how he's working this out and how he's responding to it. But now, he turns to them and starts to kind of exhort them on how they should respond to their circumstances and their trial. So in verse 27, we have actually the first directive, the first command in the book of Philippians as Paul really turns to them and urges them to live in a particular way. And he says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with each other have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot in here, 
as Paul calls this community to, to live out being a gospel community, a lot of markers of what it means to be a community that demonstrates the gospel. We'll kind of break it down into three parts. So I want to first look at the, the end of chapter one where Paul is addressing a community responding to opposition. This is a community that is facing opposition on account of their faith in Jesus. Paul says, you share in the same struggle that you saw I had and now still have. And he's talking about his struggle uh, for the gospel in this world. And when Paul was in Philippi talking about Jesus, the the Philippians saw him get beaten and tortured and imprisoned and ultimately run out of town on account of his faith in Christ. They saw that happen, and they hear that that's still going on for him, that once again he is in prison and suffering on account of Christ. And they're sharing in that somehow. Like they're getting a taste of it for themselves. We don't know if there's a, a physical, a legal component to it. At the very least, ridicule and some social marginalization, ostr- being ostracized for their faith. But they're experiencing some real, real pushback to their faith in Jesus. Trying to be Christian people in Philippi is getting a pretty harsh response. So they're sharing in that struggle. And last week, again, we saw Paul wrestle with how he responded to his own struggle, his own opposition. And his response was pretty counterintuitive, actually. You might think he would say, oh my gosh, get me out of here. I'm sick of being in this prison, and and there's so much that God wants to do through me, and I'm stuck here. I, I need to get out of here, really. Like, this stinks. But he didn't say that at all. Instead, his response is is pretty much, well, what I really care about more than anything else is that people come to know Jesus and that people hear about Christ. And somehow, by my being in prison, that's happening. And so I'm happy and I'm rejoicing right now. You should rejoice too with me. And and don't worry about me, actually, because I'm I'm in Christ. He's got me and I'm ultimately going to be delivered. I will be safe. I'll be fine one way or another. So don't worry, and what I care about most is just that people come to know Christ and that you continue to live out being a gospel community. And so now he's going to turn and tell them a little bit what that looks like. For one, he tells them to stand firm in the face of opposition. That's what he wants for them, to be able to stand firm. Uh, But what that looks like is, again, kind of counterintuitive. When I hear stand firm in the face of opposition, my automatic response is, oh, I think, well, I got to stand up for my rights. You know, that Bob Marley song, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Don't give up the fight. Like, don't let anybody push you around. Like, stick up for what's yours. Like, I, myself, I have these rights, and I need to, to stand my ground. Well, it's not really what Paul is saying here. When he calls them to stand firm, he's asking them to be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. That's what it looks like. Not stand up for themselves, but to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Again, Paul's primary concern here is for the gospel and that Jesus be made known to people, that people would hear and see Christ in action. So just like in his case, Paul's less worried what's going to happen to him, he's also not primarily concerned if the Philippians are going to get out from under this tough situation. He's primarily concerned that they will continue to act like a gospel community and that Jesus will be made known through their situation. That's what he wants. It's tempting for them now to get into self-preservation mode and to curve in and turn in on themselves once again, but they're to strive instead to make the gospel known through this struggle. And there's a couple particular ways I think Paul really wants them to demonstrate the power of the gospel in this time. One is that this church remain united in the face of opposition. 
that they stick together. He calls them to stand firm together in one spirit, strive together as one. It's really important in this time. And, and secondly, they can demonstrate the gospel by just continuing to conduct themselves like Christians in the face of opposition. To conduct themselves like Christians. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Just act like people who belong to Jesus. Act like people who, who Christ is alive in you. These are the things that are really at stake here. Paul was sure that he'd be fine, that he'd be delivered, and he kind of has the same confidence for this church, that you'll be saved, and that by God, you're going to be okay. There's nothing ultimately that your opponents can take away from you, but don't let them now, don't let them rob you of the real treasure you have, which is the power of the gospel at work in your community. Don't let them rob you of that. Don't let them tear you apart, and don't let them make you stop acting Christian. Their unity was a sign of the, the power of the gospel among them. It was a demonstration of, of Jesus and the power of God that this community was one. This, this Philippian church was a bunch of different people, from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, just different classes and social standing, different heritages, and they have become one body, one people in Jesus. This was a powerful thing. There was no other community like this in the world at that time. Nothing existed like it and that brought all these different kind of people together as one. And so their oneness, their unity is a real demonstration of the power of God to a watching world. And Paul's urging them, don't let, the, don't let yourselves be torn apart now under these tough circumstances, but stick together. Laura mentioned one of the things she loves most about the journey is one of the things I love most about the journey in that we're a lot of really different people from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different histories uh, in all kinds of ways, faith-wise, education-wise, cultural-wise, where we come from, how we see things. We're a very uh, diverse group of people who are one community that God has brought together. And you may have noticed, maybe it's just me, but you might have noticed we live in a pretty polarized world right now. We live in some fairly polarizing times. And there's a real pull in our culture to retreat into camps, into sort of tribes, if you will, people who are just like us or who think like us or we have things in common with, to surround ourselves with voices that say the things that we want to hear only. And it's not getting better. It's, it's getting worse. It's getting harder. It's to the point where if I choose to only listen to one brand of news outlet and you listen to another, like, we might as well even be living on separate planets at this point. It's like becoming very difficult to talk to each other. And now there's even algorithms to where like, if you Google an issue or a topic, like, it'll bring up articles that will tell you what you want to hear and just continue to reinforce this, this polarization, tribalization. And you know, it might feel good for a while, but it compromises the gospel, really. And, and you see whole churches now kind of folding to this pressure to kind of adopt one particular camp or another and to band together only with similar people. And anyone who's outside that group or that group think doesn't belong anymore. But guys, we, we just can't let that happen here. We are one community that God has brought together and made one of many different people in many different parts. And that is a testament to the power of the gospel. Okay, so it's not going to necessarily get any easier, and these, these cultural forces will pull at us, but we need to stand together as one and so demonstrate something different to the world and demonstrate the power of the gospel in our times.
And the gospel had reconciled this community in Philippi, reconciled lots of different people together, and Paul urges them, don't be torn apart now. Don't do it. The other thing the gospel has done for this community in Philippi is that it started to free them from the power of the selfish gene. They started to live a different quality of life, a generous, selfless, giving life, concerned for the, uh, the, the welfare of other people around them. This is starting to become a mark of their community. And Paul's saying, again, don't lose that. Don't start to just imitate the culture around you. Again, keep acting like Christians. Don't let hostility turn you into hostile people yourselves. Don't let people ridiculing your faith turn you into people who then ridicule or then have a harsh tongue. Don't let unchristian behavior coming your way start to make you act in an unchristian manner. Don't let that happen because, again, you compromise the gospel that way, and that's the real treasure that you've got as a community. He, again, seems less concerned that they live a a suffering-free life of faith and more concerned that in the midst of suffering, they act in a Christ-like way. It's not to say that their struggles weren't real and hard. It's not to say that persecution was good. It wasn't. And even early on, early centuries, Christians did lobby at times the Roman government to end their policy of persecuting Christians. But their appeal was not a self-centered appeal. It wasn't like, hey, we've got the right to practice our faith the way that we want to and free from harassment and being bothered. Their appeal was actually would you just look at the selfless lives these Christians are living? It kind of appeared to the honor-shame culture of the time and the shame of the emperors. And I, I found a quote from a second-century believer named Athenagoras who formally pleaded with a couple of emperors to change the policy of persecuting Christians. And he said this. He said, With us, you will find unlettered people, tradesmen and old women, who, though unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. For they do not rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. This was the appeal. Like, would you just look at these Christians? They're so selfless. They continue to care for the poor, to to take in the orphans, to, to... Take in the vulnerable that are left behind in your society. And you keep just heaping abuse on them, and they just respond with more kindness and more sacrificial and selfless love. It's kind of, it's not all about us and our rights, but just kind of about our selflessness, really. I think that's a far more compelling argument than some of what we hear in our society today as Christians struggle for our, our place in a pluralistic society. It's, it's, it's really... I wish everyone would just be talking about how selfless we are, how much good we're doing, and, and that would be a focal point of the conversation. I've been working now for almost a couple decades with a campus ministry that, that um, at times has felt unwelcome on secular college campuses as, as powers that be decide that our, our commitment to the authority of the Bible and orthodox Christian teaching doesn't really have a place now in the, the secular university. And we'll kind of try to get us thrown off campus, basically. And when this happens, there are, there's a place we make appeals based on sort of religious liberty and freedom of speech and all that sort of thing. But the really compelling stuff is when conversations happen in university administrations where people look around and say, but wait, this is the group that keeps sending dozens of students down to the Gulf Coast to do hurricane relief. But wait, this is the group where the international students really feel at home 
and have, have found a place of welcome and hospitality. Oh wait, this is the group that actually lives out this vision for a multicultural community. Wait, this is the group that hands out coffee to everyone who's struggling and stressed out during finals, regardless of who they are. Wait a minute, do we, do we really want to kick a group like that off campus? And sometimes they still do. But <laughs> at that point, it's shame on them, right? This is the really compelling appeal, the selfless acts and the selfless love of Christians. Now, Paul says to this church, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. As if that's, that's like part of the gift, that's part of the package. A life of faith in Jesus is going to include some suffering. He does not ever promise them a life that, that is a Christian life free of harassment. In Paul's mind, there was actually no such thing as that. He's really primarily concerned, and the real battleground for the church in the face of hostility and, and being unwelcome is that we can, not whether we can get out from under that, but whether we can still act Christian in the midst of it. That has a lot to do with our unity, our oneness, and our, our selfless conduct. And so Paul goes on to, to say, you know, kind of what's, what's the trick to, to remaining united and being gospel people in the midst of this? And he calls them in the chapter 2 to be a community of selfless love. That's what it looks like, to be a community of selfless love. And he lays out an argument. It starts in verse 1. There's kind of a four-part appeal. If you have any encouragement from the Spirit, any comfort from his love, if any, and then kind of the, the thrust here is, is kind of assuming you do. It's not if, well, I don't know if you have any, any Christian love among you, but, but assuming that you do, given that you do. And he gets kind of is a four-part appeal here to what God is doing among them. And then verse two, he does a, a four-part call to unity. Have the same love, one spirit, the same mind, uh, be of one mind, be like-minded. There's four things he says. Four-part call to unity. And then in verses three and four, there's kind of some contrast. Three things are contrasted that we ought to be markers of our community and things that ought not. So it says, no selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit and do not look only to your own interests. On the other hand, live lives of humility. Value others above yourselves and look to the interests of others. Paul's going full-on rhetoric here. He was trained in the art of classical Greek rhetoric and he's pulling out all his tools in his toolbox. This, this four-part appeal, a four four kind of ways of saying the same thing in verse 2, the repetition, and then the negative positive contrast. He's actually formulating a very careful, a very powerful, and a very well thought out and forceful argument here. Now remember, this is, this is a church that was actually pretty selfless, right? They're very generous, very giving people, but Paul doesn't say, oh, thanks for your generosity. Just make sure you keep that up. You're doing great. He, he's he feels the need to craft a very powerful and forceful argument for selfless living, for humility, and for valuing others. Because he knows, no matter how selfless you've been, whatever you've done up to this point, that selfish gene is a powerful thing. That sin nature will always try to rear its ugly head in your midst, in your lives, and in your community. And you've got to be on guard and continue to pursue a life of selfless love. It is a powerful thing, this selfless gene. It sh selfish gene, sorry. It shows up everywhere in our lives. Father's Day, you know, any of you who are parents, you know, it as delightful as your children are, it doesn't take long for it to manifest itself in their lives, a me first 
approach. I think my child is especially delightful. Uh, but even just this past week, you know, I, I had just been working on the sermon, too, and I came home, and, and Liz asked him to do something, and kind of said, well, I, I would really like it if you did this. And, and he just said, well, I don't care what you want. I care what I want. And perhaps I should have been upset, but I just smiled. I just had a laugh. I was like, yes, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. And, and I appreciate the honesty. You know, just such a truthful child. Because, you know, I like to maybe present otherwise, but in reality, that's what I'm thinking a lot of the time. I don't care what you want. I care what I want. And I'll tell you, there's nothing quite like fatherhood to realize what a deep-seated resistance I have in me to seeking the interests of another. We all do it, though, and we pass it on generation to generation, and we keep inventing new ways to put ourselves at the center. Now we have devices on us, many of us, where we can take anywhere and take a picture of anything we want at any given time. And what, what is the kind of picture we take more than anything? A selfie, right? And honestly, if a future civilization looks back on our artifacts and finds our archives of selfies, they're going to think, wow, that was a really narcissistic people. What was up with them? Just took pictures of themselves all the time. Now there's a brand of, of activism called armchair activism. I almost showed a hilarious Saturday Night Live sketch where, um, about this guy who, who he wants to do something about all the suffering in the world, and so he starts to just kind of post articles. And, and it, sa- it says, thank you, Scott. You, know, you, you ended racism because you, you typed the right thing on your phone while you were sitting on the couch with a bag of Doritos. And <laughs> we can feel like we're being selfless and looking out for the interests of others without any level of inconvenience or disruption to our own lives, without any cost to ourselves. Even our selfless words, our selfless acts can become ways where we feel good about ourselves, where we form a sense of identity, where we feel like we're better than other people. It can still turn in on ourselves. Even ministry, even church stuff can become a place where we look to find our identity and feel good about ourselves. Oh, man, it's just everywhere. And then there's just plain old times where we're like, yeah, I really don't care what you want right now. I, I want what I want. The selfish gene is a powerful thing. And so, this, again, the Philippians were not a greedy, materialistic, self-indulgent church, and yet they needed such a strong call to be selfless, to put others first, and to remain humble. And so if they needed it, then how much more do we? We are a pretty generous church by God's grace. I think we're, we're known for that here and there, for, for looking out for the interests of our neighbors, our city, and things like that. But, oh man, that will not make it any easier to continue to be selfless down the road. Our track record will mean nothing when we're continually faced with opportunities in the future to love others above ourselves, to seek the interests of our city above our insular ones, and to live humble, selfless, sacrificial lives. We need this strong call, too. But it's a tough call because everything on the left here is in our very nature. It's in our DNA, and we're called to to live out what's, what's on the other side, on the right. Humility, valuing others above ourselves. Like, how do we do that? Do we just yell at you and say, like, really, live selfless lives. Come on, try hard to do it. No, like, it's in our nature to live one way, and we're called to live another way. How do we do it? You know, it's kind of like trying to squeeze lemonade out of an apple. It's just not in there. But where is it? Well, let's read on. What Paul tells them where, where this selfless love is found is found in Christ. And the way they're going to be a community of selfless love is to be a community that becomes more and more like Christ. Starting in verse 5, we have some of the most profound words in the whole Bible. Your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. These are some of the most profound words in the whole Bible. Some people think it was actually a, a, a song, an early song that Christians would sing in their worship gatherings. It has kind of the form and structure of a song. Some people think Paul wrote this himself as opposed to quoting it, and therefore he wrote a new song that Christians could sing in their gatherings. Either way, it's a, it's a beautiful thing because people didn't have Bibles yet. This was a, an oral culture, and they could, they could just capture and say and learn and transmit these profound truths about Jesus in such a, you know, it's like seven lines, and it's a whole theology class in here. It covers so much. It's the incarnation of Jesus, that God became man, that, that the God of heaven and earth entered into a human body and lived a human life. What a profound thing that is. It touches on his sacrificial death on a cross. Such a significant thing that Jesus would die in the most shameful way of, of and a, a sacrificial death on our behalf. And it talks about his glory, how he's not still dead, he's actually been raised up and he currently reigns and is in the highest place and there will come a future day when everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. This is all in seven lines, a profound thing. And people have written whole commentaries and poured over this passage to, to learn more about some of the most profound mysteries of who God is, who Jesus is, and the Christian faith. And that, that's well worth doing. But I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that this, this is not a standalone passage. It's actually part of a letter. It's part of a whole thing that Paul is trying to communicate to these people. And it's part of a larger argument because he has just called them to be a community of selfless love. And now he's telling them how that happens. It has got to happen by being transformed to be more and more like Christ. It doesn't happen by appealing to our best nature. Our nature is selfish. It doesn't happen by giving us an example to follow. Jesus here is not just an example like, oh, look, he showed us how to live selflessly, and now just go ahead and do that. It's not in our nature to do that. We need more than that. Jesus is not just standing over here with his nature, his selfless, sacrificial, self-giving nature, calling over to us with our selfish nature, hey, just try to be more like me. He's not doing that. And we actually, his nature and our nature are contrasted here. It's the same things. Our nature is one of selfish ambition, vain conceit, seeking our own interests. The very nature, the character of God himself is one of valuing others, of self-sacrifice and looking to the concerns of others and laying down his privileges to use them to lift us up. And he doesn't call to us from his side to get up from our side and be more like him, but actually this is the profound thing here, that Jesus, very nature God, came and took on our form. He came and lived in a human body, a real one with human DNA and all of its propensity towards selfishness and putting ourselves first. And Jesus took on our very nature and defeated the power of the selfish gene by living a human life in a human body in a way that was completely selfless and completely self-giving and sacrificial and geared towards others and lifting us up. 
He defeated the power of the selfish gene in that way. He put to death the selfish gene when his body was torn apart on that cross as he obeyed all the way to the end and gave his very life for us. And not only did he take our nature on, though, but now he allows us to participate in his nature because, again, he's not still dead. He's been raised up. And as we are in Christ, he allows us to partake in his nature. The same power that raised up Christ from the dead is actually alive in us now. It allows us to actually live a different way. It can transform our nature to that Christ be alive in us. That's where the power to be a selfless community comes into play, that we need to be transformed more and more like Jesus, transformed by him, not just trying really, really hard to be like him. We need to continue to surrender our self-will, continue to surrender our self-centeredness and to invite Jesus to be at the center, to really worship him, to place him at the center of our lives so that it's his life being lived out in us, not our own. And you know, we might as well get out of the center. We might as well have Jesus at the center now because someday that's how it's all going to be. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's trying to be at the center. He wants to be at the center. And, and, oh, we just struggle so hard to hold on. We try so hard to maintain control. We struggle so hard to, to latch on to our own will and to put ourselves first. But he's stripping that away. And every circumstance is an opportunity for that to be further stripped away and for the life of Christ to be made known in us, for us to die to self and partake in his nature of selfless, sacrificial love. That's what's really at stake here for the Philippians. Again, Paul is not primarily concerned that they get out from under their struggles, that they live a hassle-free Christian life. There's no such thing. He's really concerned that in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their circumstances, that they keep acting Christian, that they keep dying to self, that they keep demonstrating the power of the gospel to make them one and to make them a different kind of people, a selfless kind of people in a world that lives a different way. And that's really what's at stake for us. Whatever we're going through, the question is not, Will our troubles go away? The question is not, will we be okay? Ultimately, yeah, we'll be okay. But the question now is, will we be more and more like Christ in the midst of our circumstances? And will we allow him to make himself known through our oneness and through our sacrificial love and a life, a community of self-giving and putting others first? Let's pray for that together as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what's captured here. It's just so hard to, to explain how wonderful you are. Thank you that you are so unlike us in, in all the best ways. And thank you that also you're so willing to become like us in the ways we desperately needed. Lord, thank you for sharing in our nature, for coming to dwell among us. Thank you for uh, making the way for us to live a different kind of life. And so because you do, let us not squander that. Let us not uh, receive the gospel in vain, but make this gospel community. I want to pray for us right now, for this church here that you have brought together from all over the place of different ages and different cultures and different backgrounds, different worldly status and identity markers. You have made us one, and I, I want to pray for the, the unity of this church in the face of a very polarizing world that somehow our community would be a witness to the power of the gospel. And I want to pray for our our conduct, that we would be known for selfless, 
sacrificial love, a, a, a church that really cares for the well-being of our neighbors, of our city, and our world. That it wouldn't just be talk, but it'd, it'd be a thing that you're doing in us. And we just want to acknowledge now that we don't have it in us to live that kind of life, but you do. It's who you are, and so we just want to exalt you in our midst, and we want you to be at the center to make us more and more uh, like you, that you would get the glory, the praise that you will get forever. Would we, you be honored in our midst now, in Jesus' name, amen.